0: Live from Pier 28 on the San Francisco Embarcadero, it's the IDEO Futures Podcast, where entrepreneurship meets design. Hey, hello everybody, it's Diego. Welcome to the IDEO Futures Podcast. On episode 46, we were talking about graphic design and racing cars. Today, we're talking about modern capitalism, how to run a great venture, organizational friction, and aquatic creatures. I am so happy to introduce you today to Michael Deering, Michael is a really special guy, and as you're going to hear in our conversation, he is a deep thinker on any number of topics and is a person I always go to personally for advice and guidance on many issues of life and certainly about business. You'll see why uh, in our conversation. We structured it in a special way, which I hope you'll find fun and entertaining, but also deeply insightful. So let me tell you a little bit about Michael. Michael runs a venture capital firm called Harrison Metal. He founded it in 2006. He loves helping people productize new technology, take those products to market, and then make those products into businesses. From 2006 until 2014, he was a consulting associate professor at the Stanford University School of Engineering and taught all across campus, and especially at the D School, which is where we met. He has taught some of the most popular classes in entrepreneurship and management at Stanford. Michael and I actually first met in a class I was teaching with Bob Sutton. Uh, You know Bob from episode 44. The class was called Creating Infectious Action, or CIA for short. Michael ended up joining the teaching team, and he brought so much of his knowledge and wisdom from his career into that classroom And if you want to see a slice of his kind of thinking about creating infectious action, go to HarrisonMetal.com. He has an awesome little video on there on the front page called H1N1. It's a great primer on how to design for virality. One of my favorite topics. Okay, so prior to Stanford and Harrison Metal, Michael had an amazing career. He spent six and a half years at eBay. Maybe you've heard of them. And uh, he had tours of duty in category management, corporate strategy, U.S. Marketing, and finally was the Senior Vice President and General Merchandise Manager for all of ebay.com. He got there by actually taking care of merchandise and running stores that sold real stuff inside of bricks and mortars. So before eBay, he was the CEO of Industrial Shoe Warehouse. He did corporate strategy at the Walt Disney Company And as we talk about in our conversation in the podcast, he ran operations at the downtown Boston location of Filene's Basement. He also did a stint at Bain & Company. As you'll hear, Michael has an amazing sense of humor, and I think it's very significant that he rates A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole as the funniest single piece of writing he's ever read. All right, well, without further ado, I'm going to just roll the tape, so enjoy this conversation with Michael. Welcome to IDEO, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very glad you accepted our offer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get many offers. So I tend to have a pretty high accept rate. <laughs> <laughs> so I I just wanted uh, to, uh, before we get into the substance of this podcast, which is a really uh, experimental format we're going to use, I'm going to actually... Sure. Uh, quiz isn't quite the right word, but I'm going to read <laughs> some of your tweets. Oh, and, cool. And you're going to provide some commentary all right. on what was going through your head when you wrote them. Okay. All, which, all right. Sounds which good. Be fascinating. Let's see. Let's see if I can remember. <laughs> well, you can, you can make it up. I will. One, you know. I will. But first, for our audience, I want to give you a sense of who Michael is. And I wanted to start out by noting one of the many things I think we found we had in common when we met. And this was the fact that we both loved visiting the library oh, at Harvard yeah. Business School. That place
1: is a temple.
0: And not many people no actually use that library. It's a poorly attended temple. It's, it is yeah, for various it, reasons. It is such a spectacular place and
1: well and not to share our ages but back in those days, you know, the internet equaled AOL. And so <laughs> there was no Google, there was no online research. You went and physically su- you sat in the midst of these incredible collections of documents and reference materials and i still remember those librarians just they blew me away with
0: their access to information i guess they were like little human internets yeah they were we didn't really know what we had back then yeah it's a gem of a library it feels like something you would find in oxford or mm-hmm. cambridge mm-hmm. yeah i remember the when i found out there
1: was an archive in the basement and this is there actually is? It's two floors below the main that. floor. Yeah. And down there, they have first editions of, uh, they have Adam Smith's manuscripts. They have maps of the new world, you know, from the time of the colonial times. It's, it is an unbelievably precious resource there. And I think it's underutilized and,
0: and underappreciated for uh, sure. I, I didn't know it existed. Yeah. Wow. I have seen some stuff from their archives about the general, mm-hmm. uh, the founder mm-hmm. of, of the modern venture capital mm-hmm. uh, movement, mm-hmm. which is, General Dorio, mm-hmm. I think, is his name. Yeah, it's a, uh,
1: that place is, 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 is an archive that sh- really should get a lot more attention than it does.
0: Well, I think we should make a field trip. <laughs> Sounds good. We could do a up. podcast from the basement of the, <laughs> uh, of, <laughs> of the HBS library. Like the basement of the Alamo, except that it actually exists. Right. So the other thing we have in common is we're both INTJs.
1: Yes, there long live go. the
0: INTJs. I'm borderline ENTJ. Yeah, I prefer the INTJ. Descriptor. I would think they would filter all the eyes out of Ido in
1: the beginning. Like, I can't imagine being at Ido. And there's no eyes the, at Ido. I, I did not <laughs> The introverts, I mean to say, and, but yeah, introversion is is a curse and a gift all
0: at once. There's actually a lot of introverts here. Yeah, yeah. I think personal. There's a difference, I think, between personality and how you like to ideate. So mm, I'm, that's I, for point. example, I'm mildly introverted, but I, uh, I am. An extroverted thinker like I require other people. Other me people, to get yeah. Good done. Yeah, it, they definitely that energy,
1: energy boost you get from other people, especially in types of work like you do here. I could see that being hugely important.
0: And I think uh, I have a sense. I'm imagining what a a project team of all extroverts would look like, and I have a feeling it wouldn't do very well. There probably wouldn't be a lot of listening going I think on. that's called MBA programs. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's yeah. the middle row of an MBA classroom. Right, right, all right. All people trying to get a good grade. Exactly. So I, I took the liberty of going to 16personalities.com, and I looked up what INTJ is. Oh, nice. It's quote-unquote It just arch- says awesome, right? Yeah, well, it, yeah <laughs> after that. It says the architect. Oh, Isn't I like that. Cool. And I'm not going to read all the stuff that's bad about INTJs, but there's some positive stuff. So I thought, if nothing else, you'll leave this podcast feeling even better about yourself. Small ego boost. That's why I watch reality (laughs) television. It makes me feel better about myself. So here it is. With a natural thirst for knowledge that shows itself early in life, INTJs are often given the title of bookworm as children. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I used to read the encyclopedia for fun. We used to go to the HBS library for fun.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Can we look at the audience numbers on this? I think they're going through the floor
0: right now. Maybe not. Maybe That's not. okay. While this may be intended as an insult by their peers, <laughs> they more than likely identify with it and are even proud of it, greatly enjoying their broad and deep body of knowledge. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right? Okay. Is that is still working? Yeah, You're still INTJ? Yeah,
1: yeah. I think so.
0: INTJs radiate self-confidence in an aura of mystery. Radiates a strong word, but I'm 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 tracking with you. <laughs> so far, I'm am I'm, I'm signing up for this. Their insightful observations, original ideas, and formidable logic enable them to push change with sheer willpower and force of personality.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah, I'll take that. I like that. Yeah, I like that. I like it as a as like I can rattle the saber. I don't know if I want to do that, but it'd be yeah. nice if people thought I could do that, even yeah. if I can't. Well, I, I guess when you read that, I think. I think that's
1: wonderful. And then I think of myself, if I were my own colleague, i think, what an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. Your <laughs> sheer force of personality is, I think that's a euphemism <laughs> for being a dick. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> At times it will seem that INTJs are bent on deconstructing and rebuilding every idea and system hmm. they come into contact with, employing a sense of perfectionism and even morality to this work. Wow. Yeah, it's heavy. That's heavy. It is what, heavy. what website is this? 16personalities.com. Okay. So we can do a denial of service attack on them later. <laughs> but so they had a list of interesting INTJs, which I, Colin Powell.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, I do like cool. him.
0: I like him. Elon Musk. Wow. He's an INTJ? Yeah. I
1: Jeez.
0: think he'd be an ENTJ. ENTJ. Yeah, I, I would have guessed. I yeah. think he's not. Certainly E. <sighs> Vladimir Putin? No. Yeah. Really? How do they know that, though? Do you think he took it? That does smell a little fishy. Michelle Obama?
1: Oh, okay, I'll yeah, take, I'll yeah, take I'll,
0: it. We'd we'll take her in the INTJ draft, and then we get into <laughs> fictional characters. Uh, Walter White. Interesting. How would you do the Myers Briggs on a fictional character? I don't know. He was a good guy, though. I like him. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm. I think he's a fictional character. <laughs> self-created, yeah, <laughs> self-created, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I can see him in there. Hmm, okay, and then uh, uh, Gandalf the Grey. Oh,
1: we have a good team. Yeah. Except minus Putin. We'll have to find some job for him.
0: <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll have him duel with Gandalf. Okay, so we've established that we actually uh, have some stuff in common. That's fascinating. I'm going to check out that website. Yeah, that's pretty good. I actually had good graphics on it. So let's talk a little bit about your Twitter stream. Let's do it. Let's get inside your head. I'm just excited anybody's reading it. Inside the head of Michael Deering. It was really interesting to go back through your Twitter stream, uh-huh. it was like living history in reverse. <laughs> and so I did get depressed around the November timeframe. yeah. Oh, jeez. So I I've tried to put them in some categories here and okay. I thought we could start off. We'll kind of have a, a tower of power here. Okay. Let's start talking about venture mechanics. Sounds good. You're a student of business and a venture capitalist and yep. a very accomplished operator. So I want to ask you this is such a great tweet. You said, I think my gravestone will say, he fought for gross margin. Oh. <laughs> that was pretty recent. Uh, what do you want me to do? Defend
1: that? <laughs> Explain <laughs> uh, it. I like gross margin. Gross margin is beautiful, yeah. yeah. I had a, um, an epiphany when I was first, my first real job where I had operating responsibility was out of a couple years out of college, and I worked in store operations for Filene's basement and I got a hold of our financials. We were a public company, so I had the company financials, but I got the, the P&L for the store that I operated. And the store that I operated had, I believe, a 34% gross margin. And I remember thinking, geez, we're working our butts off so that two-thirds of every dollar of sales goes right out the door to pay our vendors. That seems like a lot of work for not a lot of payoff. And as I got to spend more time in retail, I only became more passionate about this topic, gross margin that is. And yeah, I actually really believe that gross margin is just nature's way of telling you whether you should stop or keep going. You know, it's the difference between the perceived value of what you're doing and the true cost of providing it. And so I think if you've got a tiny little gross margin or worst case, a negative one, that's the universe telling you to
0: stop. Yeah
1: take your hands off the steering wheel and go do something else because it's not that valuable what you're doing. Yeah. Rethink it. Right. Yeah. And why, why swim against that current? Well, there, especially nowadays when you have for, for, you know, for very bright, hardworking people, there are huge industrial changes that have big fat gross margins that, you know, you can work just as hard or, or uh, maybe even a little less hard and, and do better as a business.
0: Fabulous. So here's one that follows on from that. In all things, take your markdowns promptly and with conviction. <laughs> this I was taught by my
1: boss at that very same job at Filene's Basement. And we had, I won't go into all the history, but we had an automatic markdown system where anything that was in the store for longer than 30 days automatically got marked down 25%. Really? And if it stayed another two weeks, it was marked down 50% off. And it, nothing would last longer than. Um, about six or seven weeks. And so the store turned inventory very, very quickly. And I remember talking to my boss there, and he said to me, Look, we make mistakes. And when we make mistakes, we have to own them fast and we have to get the stuff out of the store. And that turns out, when I wrote that tweet, I had just taken a pretty big markdown uh, in one of my portfolio companies. And I felt anxious up until the point where I took out the pen and wrote the new price, the new fair market value of these shares that we owned. And once I did that, I felt this huge weight off my shoulders because instead of carrying around a number that didn't actually have, you know, any relevance to the true fair market value of these shares, we fessed up and said, look, it's not worth that much. Here's what we think it's worth. And it felt honest, it felt true, and it felt like, that was when I could put the
0: lesson to work
1: and not make that same mistake again that had led me down that path.
0: Yeah, when you're running a place like Filings, you can't whistle through the graveyard and just ignore the prices on the goods. They're just sitting there staring you in the face day after day not moving.
1: And the automatic process, the automatic markdowns, they kept the stuff moving. Like you, you would just watch it age and you would watch the price fall and you would feel bad, but you would know every day you went home, the stuff on that selling floor is, is marked to
0: its fair value. Wow, that's what yeah. a cool algorithm
1: yeah. to run the business. A crappy business, but <laughs> yeah. if, you know, if you're going to be in that business with low genetic gross margins and you need to turn the inventory very quickly, the automatic markdowns make a ton of sense.
0: That's so cool. So here's another tweet. I don't think it's one you can actually talk about directly, but maybe you can expound upon what it represents. I just published Factory versus Studio, which is one of the many wonderful videos on your site.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, Factory versus Studio was the, the post, there's two places you can watch. One is a video on HarrisonMetal.com, and the other is a short written version if you like to read things on Medium. They're, it's posted in both places, and it's the same content. The Factory versus Studio is an experiment that my colleagues and I ran at the D School, and uh, this is back when I was teaching at Stanford. And the idea was, what if you gave the exact same working assignment to two separate teams, and the only thing you changed between those two teams was the start conditions for their work. So one team, you set up like an assembly line, and you had a rigid division of labor, and you basically gave people some visual and auditory cues to think, oh, this is a factory. And the other team, you would treat them like they were in some sort of kindergarten arts and crafts class. And you'd throw tons of creative materials around. You'd let them work and organize it any way they wanted. The room that they were in felt like a playroom. But their assignment was exactly the same. And that is to produce a a children's book in about 15 or 20 minutes uh, that was for a certain age group and had merchandising appeal and mass market potential. And so they had the exact same assignment, but they had vastly different working start conditions. And what you observe in the factory group is that they, they, without even having to prompt them very hard, they fall back into this very quiet, deliberative, non-collaborative, mm-hmm. very top-down hierarchical model of work getting done. And in the studio group, it looks like a playroom. They're having fun. They're talking over each other. They're playing with all sorts of the materials and having a blast. Having said that, the other differences are also, on the flip side, are also remarkable. The studio group or the creative studio group looks like they're having a lot of fun, but they don't actually look like they're getting a lot of work done. Uh And so if you're watching this happen and watching it unfold, you start to worry, like, are they actually going to produce anything? In the factory side, by contrast, they're not having fun. They're not talking to each other and they're working in very what people would find unstimulating conditions, but they actually are making a book and they're fulfilling the mission of the work, which was to create this children's book. And so the, the purpose of the, the video and the purpose of the experiment in the classroom and then subsequently the video and the essay is just to say, look, start conditions matter a lot. So the conditions of the room and the materials and the, the mission and the feeling of how you're supposed to work together, those get communicated with very simple, subtle clues. The language you use, the furniture you use, the materials that are available to people, and those uh, determine massively how people will collaborate with each other without even having to try very hard.
0: Yeah, it, it's amazing. I, I kind of have this whiteboard index when mm-hmm. I walk into uh, new <laughs> new companies, and mm-hmm. I try to look at the size of the whiteboards on the wall if mm-hmm. they even have any, mm-hmm. and I get some measure of where they sit on that spectrum you just described right. from r- really reliable outcomes mm-hmm. to really valid outcomes, yep. which would be the studio model. Yep. Right. And you're actually I'm looking behind you, and there's a, a floor to ceiling whiteboard. Yeah, it says it's I like. Itself. I wish I will. Yeah. And that's kind of what you want. I yeah. think a lot of the things we do around IDEO is just to get people in the feeling like the sky's the limit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, go for it.
1: No, and the space you're in and the norms of behavior and the materials you give people to work with, huge determinants of how free they feel to
0: to to explore that stuff and to push pushing in new directions. I would love to ask you on that very subject about materials and pushing in new directions. Could sure. you could you give everybody listening? Uh, a sense of why you chose the name Harrison Metal for your firm and what it represents oh, to you? sure, sure. Uh, so it's named after a guy named John Harrison,
1: who was the uh, clockmaker, uh, an engineer and clockmaker, who solved the problem of longitude. I won't tell you the whole story, but basically back in the early part, uh, up until the early part of the 1700s, uh, ships' captains used to not be able to tell how far east or west they were on the open ocean. Latitude was easy; it's the north-south part. You sort of measure the sun, the angle of the sun, and stuff, and you can always tell when noon is. But uh, east-west was hard, and that had huge consequences, uh, both for the Businesses that they were running but also the safety and security the crew and cargo so John Harrison solved that problem You can look it up online as to how he did that But basically he built a really accurate clock and when I read that story in grad school someone had recommended the book called longitude to me and I read that story and I just fell in love with the character and felt like This is somebody who believed so strongly in a particular in solving a particular problem that he'd really devoted a huge part of his creative years to it uh, came up with a really elegant and simple design and and in the process revolutionized uh, international trade The metal part comes from when I was in high school and college. I was a huge fan of Ayn Rand and now before you tune out, let me tell you that <laughs> <laughs> I, I Looked at books like the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged the way some people look at Star Wars or Superman comics hmm. this was totally cartoonish characters in an interesting fight that no, I had never read anything like this. And and it boils down, the philosophy boils down to the creative, the entrepreneurs who are creative and risk-taking are really the heroes of modern life. I'll leave out all the political stuff because that's for another show. But, I really loved those books in the way that people loved the comic books they grew up with. And to me, anything where the entrepreneurs and the business people could be heroes was was something I was in love with. So when I was naming the company, I sat down and I said, okay, Harrison has to be in it if he were alive today would he what would he do? What would he call it? And I thought back to a character in Atlas Shrugged called Hank Reardon who set up who whose main product was called Reardon Metal. And so I thought, oh Harrison could have his own product and it might be called Harrison's Metal. So that's it. That's really
0: cool. Have you seen the clocks in Greenwich?
1: Oh yeah, many times. I usually I go every couple years to go visit the Maritime Museum in Greenwich and there they have the four prototypes of his clocks. Many, many copies have been made from those, but you go into this museum and you see the first prototype of his clock, and it's about the size of a, a dresser, a, a yeah, piece of it's furniture. It's huge. Huge, and it's elegant and beautiful, and, but huge. And over the span of about 10 years, he takes that mechanism for very accurately keeping time at sea, and he shrinks it all the way down by prototype number four to a pocket watch it, that is equally elegant, but you're just astounded by this rapid prototyping <laughs> rapid by the times, uh, by the definition of the times, but amazing to shrink that, that product down from a huge piece of furniture down to a pocket
0: watch. Yeah. I just remember looking at those and a being astounded by their beauty, mm-hmm. by their ingenuity, but also feeling like, God, there are no new ideas. This idea of mm-hmm. composting your ideas mm-hmm. and iterating, mm-hmm. you know what? It's been around for a while.
1: It's a, it's a fundamental practice of good human innovation and it's been around a lot longer
0: than any of us. Yes, indeed. And it will hopefully outlast us as well. I think it will. All right. So here's a, here's a tweet that I have actually, I think I've repeated it about 30 times since (laughs) you you wrote it on April 7th. It's awesome. All right, here we go. When the Kleenex box is full, you take two. When it's almost empty, you might use one twice. That's why oversized financings aren't bad.
1: Yeah. That day was a day when a company I dearly loved was feeling the consequences of having raised too much money. Mm -hmm. And I won't, for obvious reasons, I can't say a whole lot about the company, but what, what I would say is that sometimes people feel like if, their gift, if the market gives, wants to give them lots of resources, that's not going to spoil their frugality. They're going to stay just as scrappy as they were when they were running out of money. And my point to the particular founders in this case was that's just not true because in our, in our operating system as humans is different. We, we, have a different op, we have a different approach to abundance versus scarcity. And when things are perceived as abundant, like your bank account has $30 million in it, uh, which granted is a is a great feeling, but is not like, that doesn't actually make you very wise around the margins of your spending. And by contrast, I continue to see f- companies and founders when they're just on fumes or what feels like fumes to them, they come up with radically impressive, innovative ideas for how to either extend a product or charge more money or cut costs or do something that, that extends their life. And I know that those, those breakthrough thoughts wouldn't happen if they were sitting on piles and piles and piles of cash. And I think actually oversized financing is a huge curse uh, in, our, in our industry right now. And it seems like a terrible thing to, to cry about, but it really does in, in many ways, it spoils the scrappiness of some really otherwise great companies.
0: And when you're counseling companies in your portfolio and the entrepreneurs in there, do you talk about other constraints like time and people and focus as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the time one is, is mainly framed around opportunity cost of their time. Uh, I'm not running companies. I'm not building products anymore, but they are, and their creative window is wide open. And say somebody's creative window is open for, call it, 30 or 40 years. And that, during that 30 or 40 years, they're going to do their life's work. So a year or two or three or four spent in that time is a meaningful mm-hmm. portion of their window. And so for them, high velocity is the antidote to you know, wasting lots of time during that creative window. Yeah, keep your energy up. Keep your energy up. And if you're wrong, you need to know yesterday. Because if you're wrong, you need to either stop doing it or do it a different way. And, yeah. and I think going slow and deliberate and perfectionistic is All of this, those are the behaviors associated
0: with not finding out very quickly how wrong you are. Well, on that topic about finding out how wrong you are, let's shift gears to modern capitalism. Yeah, let's. 14th of December, 2016. So glad that the real economy is in the hands of tens of millions of firms, not just a handful of CEOs.
1: Mm. I was probably, I was probably... um, thinking about those wacky business leader summits that President Trump, uh, or that the time President-elect Trump had set up where somehow the technology industry, mm-hmm. capital T, capital I, had been invited to collaborate with the, new, the incoming president. And I remember thinking, those are impressive companies around the table. Oh, yeah. Some of them have oh, built yeah. spectacular s- products and changed billions of people's lives. But the real work whatever's next is actually being percolated in thousands of other companies by many many unknown people and I love that highly distributed base of power in our system it prevents any one of those folks from being too important to us and it and in many ways not to get too into politics but you know for some people that's a that's a life and safety issue that they are able to do their works their life's passion out of the spotlight from the topmost leadership in the country.
0: And I wanted to ask you about kind of the philosophy and the approach that you've been taking with your site and the videos you produce, because I think when you started it, you were doing a lot of videos about design thinking process, how to price things, uh, how to sell things, all these uh, they're amazing. They're an amazing resource. More recently I've been seeing you transition into videos that are really essays and meditations on really big topics about capitalism and how it works. But what I love is that you'll find a specific character and tell the, tell the story through their eyes and yeah. through their life to get to a bigger point. Yeah. And you have one on there about Sarah Cornell. Yeah. That just blew my mind. Oh yeah. And I think it's kind of what you're talking about with these big Titanic CEOs yeah. versus actually how capitalism really finds its way forward.
1: Sarah's one of my uh, all time favorite characters. She was one of the young women who came out from the countryside to work in the mill towns of New England, and uh, for her, uh, industrial capitalism and and the dawn of the Industrial Revolution in America gave her a chance to pursue her life and to define on her own terms whether she would, you know, who she would date, how much she would make, what she would spend it on, where she would live. Um, and at the same time, it brought as it brought all those great things for, into her life. It exposed her to tremendous personal risks. and she ended up being murdered by. The, we think the the mm. Baptist minister in her congregation killed her and had an affair with her and killed her. She um, was pregnant when she, she was. She was killed. pregnant. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and it wasn't known until she was uh, until the autopsy that she was she was five months pregnant at the time she died. What struck me about this case when I first read it in college, uh, thanks to Professor Naomi Lamoureux, who's now the head of history at Yale, she was a uh, history professor at Brown, and she exposed this story to me. And what I loved about it was we were in the same, in our sa- in, in our brain we were holding two ideas at once, that the Industrial Revolution changed things for the better for many, many millions of people. Uh, and it also exposed people to tremendous risks that, they, that came hand in hand joined with those freedoms and it was okay to hold in your head those two thoughts at once that there's beautiful parts of industrial capitalism and there's tremendously scary parts that have real human cost
0: so building on that there's another great tweet in here from February 7th Harriet Tubman Mm. hero of capitalism
1: yeah Harriet, uh first of all, I really, really hope the Treasury somebody in the Treasury is hurrying up with those twenty dollar yeah, bill designs because absolutely. I don't trust him for a second to yeah. actually release those. So yeah. get the gotta, engravings done. We gotta get those done. Print get those, those out. suckers. <laughs> <laughs> but uh Harriet, you know, obviously if you went to to elementary school in, in the United States, you, you've learned about Harriet Tubman as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. But what many people don't know about Harriet Tubman is that she also was uh, quite an entrepreneur in other ways. So after she stopped being a conductor for the Underground Railroad, she became a spy for the Union Army. And the Union generals uh, used to give her piles of walking around money to, to pay informants throughout the South. And Harriet had this uncanny ability to mingle and mix in the southern slave and free communities, or pardon me, in the southern slave communities as well as the northern free communities of, of African Americans and get information, vital information that was useful to the Union in the, in the effort to crush the Confederacy. And, and they came to rely on her so much that they allowed her to participate in planning this raid on a series of plantations in South Carolina. I'll point you to the video because oh, yeah. the story so is good. so long and so good, but she is way more than the conductor on the Underground Railroad. That would have been enough to secure her place in history, but she was a spy, a military leader, and, and, and later in her life, a teacher. She taught freed slaves how to start small businesses on their own so they could support themselves and their families and their freedom.
0: Is some of the inspiration for the teaching that you're doing via your site coming from Harriet? No, but it amplifies it. Mm.
1: I didn't know she was a teacher until about a year ago when I was reading some of the um, things that had been written about her life and some of her own interviews that she did before she passed away, and it reminded me that there's this idea that sometimes you can be a teacher if institutions will tell you you are now a teacher, kind of like what happened to me at Stanford. When I left eBay and Stanford hired me, I thought, oh, now I am a teacher, but that's not true. I, I could be a teacher anytime I want, any place I want, any subject I want, and that is that's how her example kind of amplifies my love for this is... I had the love already, but she reminded me that you can set up a shop anywhere you want and teach, and all you need is students to agree that you're qualified. You don't need an institutional stamp.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and that's why I love what you've been doing with your site, because it's a really fresh take on how to get the word out. Thank you. And each of those could be a class into themselves, each of those videos.
1: Well, it is. Harriet Tubman's Career Life Lessons is a class
0: we're offering next week. Yeah, June 1. It's sold yeah. out. It is sold I out. It, I looked at it last <laughs> night i gotta, yeah. I got to get into one of those. Hey, I'm also going to point people to your website because I could ask you a question about pen, price tag, and flashlight, but sure. I, I really want them to see the video. Yeah, that's so a good one. When you finish this podcast, or if you want to pause right now, as long as you promise to come back, go look at the pen, price tag, and flashlight video on HarrisonMetal.com. Thanks for the plug. I agree. That's a good one. That's a great one. <laughs> Come on, we're INTJ. That's a great one. <laughs> I will bend you to my will. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever that... I forgot what it said.
1: Ra- I'm supposed to be radiating self-confidence. Sheer force of will. Sheer force of will radiate self-confidence. I'm going to put those on a post-it note and put them on my mirror in the bathroom. Yeah, rewrite your
0: bio. Radiate. <laughs> Michael Deering radiates. Something. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk about organizational life. Sure. Let's get a little more down and dirty and talk about people... 14 june 2016 business is hard period Mm. It's so much harder than anybody told me (laughs) Amen brother, and I used
1: to think you know when I was coming up and I started studying business really in in graduate school in my mba but in college and in business school, I felt like the model was Okay, here's the deterministic thing. The deterministic model of running a business is you gather the information, you do the rigorous, thoughtful analytics, and then you come up with an action plan. And if you've done your work properly, the money flows out of the machine. And it's a complete lie. The deterministic model and the idea that rational analytics is what we're we're missing is complete. Those are part of the equation, but by no means sufficient the, the human factor is everything. And the companies that I work with, and I've over the last decade or so, invested in about a hundred companies to find those hundred, uh, you know, that, that represents 1% of all the companies I've met with or considered investing in. They run out of runway, not because they run out of capital. They run out of runway, not because they run out of creative ideas they run out of runway because they grind the gears on the human mm-hmm. relationships. And people get burnt out, they get angry, they go home, they don't feel good about the work, they don't feel good about themselves, they start to throw up their hands. So an unbelievable percentage of the coaching that I give to those founders or to those teams is related to how they might work together better. Uh, because the, you start with the premise that they're all smart enough to figure out what the data says. But what they're not always equipped to do is work through the tricky human situations that come up. And so we spend, my colleagues and I in the classroom or myself in in these coaching relationships, spend a disproportionate amount of time talking about the human interaction.
0: And how much of that time is spent helping that person actually kind of figure out who they are and become a better person? Because it strikes me that so much of the business literature is either about data and strategy and and external stuff, or it's about how to lead other people, but yeah. very little is about just like figuring out who you are so you show up better. Yeah. Self-awareness is a huge part of it. You're right on with
1: that. The other part that ends up being a big chunk of the conversation is how do you keep your own energy balance high so that you can show up every day and do the great work that your brain is capable of doing. And that's why business is hard. It's, it's hard because uh, it requires that showing up with your best self uh, and your real self every single day. That somehow your best self and real self have to figure out a way to work together.
0: Yeah, there's a. I think there's a misconception, especially I think spread in business schools, that like you said, businesses are about finances and all these rational things. But I actually think what you get paid for at work is emotional self-regulation.
1: Mm. That's a good way to put it. I think that's for sure the differentiator between the folks who are, you know, Thoroughly successful and the folks for whom it's a really bumpy ride. I also think judgment You know a lot of times the you know We live in an a B testing world right Mm -hmm. where you know, oh software, you know, you can test anything Well, you shouldn't test anything, you know There's a whole bunch of things that are just bad judgment calls and that's what we're supposed to be paid for is is excellent judgment You practice judgment you aren't born with it But I think judgment and emotional self-regulation would be big parts of it.
0: Yeah. No need to test (laughs) Sorry
1: no, no that's it's okay. not
0: even funny what I was going to say. I was going to say, no need to test three-legged jeans. <laughs> say that. Should I say that? Yeah. Most people aren't going to get that, though.
1: <laughs> that's a tweet. <laughs> that's a tweet. <laughs> that's a tweet. <laughs> tweet it out right now. Yeah. <laughs> you tweet <laughs> it, and then Hasht- I'll add it to my <laughs> list.
0: <laughs> Hashtag IDEO. <laughs> well, uh, but let's do talk about other people and their failings. Sure. <laughs> May 8th. Someone has lied to a lot of young people oh, telling... No. Yeah, oh, yeah so I know can, this one, yeah. Sorry, so go can, ahead. Can I read it? Or yeah, 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 okay. yeah. yeah. all right, I'll start over. <laughs> Someone has lied to a lot of young people telling them working 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. will still allow exceptional business outcomes. Untrue, in my opinion. Yeah, that, this is so
1: hard. I got a lot of uh, blowback on that. It would be amazingly awesome if you could work many fewer hours and have wild success that would be great I would love that but it's not true the advantage of time spent on work doesn't have to be in the office but time spent working is a huge driver of people's success and I just wish people were more honest about that and, and I'm totally okay and this, this that tweet came from a series of conversations I had with a few founders who were having trouble with their teams showing up late and leaving early. And somehow it's become conventionally wise to think that you can live this peaceful, beautiful, well-balanced life and end up in the top 1, 5, 10% of your profession. And that just isn't true. Um, and I really encourage anybody who suspects that they might be that superhuman, that they can craft a very generous schedule for their personal lives and, and not be thinking about work a lot of the time. Talk to the people who you admire most in their career and what they've accomplished. Again, you don't have to, you don't have to work that many, uh, you don't have to work endless hours, but you do have to at least match so it's internally consistent. What are you aiming for? And if you're aiming for that top one, five, 10% outcome, you gotta work a lot. You gotta work a lot.
0: Yeah, game-changing creative destruction doesn't happen in six hours a day.
1: No, and and listen, and one of the follow-ups to that tweet was I got in a little bit of a spat with somebody who was like, this is what's wrong with Silicon Valley and thinking that you have to have no life and you're driving people to mental illness with this thinking, and I couldn't disagree more. I think you're being dishonest with people if you let them think that they can work these cush hours in cush circumstances and still have a heroic career. Heroism means it was hard. It means it was suffering and and took a lot out of you. It can't be both joyful and pleasant
0: and heroic. So there's a tension in there, which I always find difficult to resolve because I deeply believe in what you're saying. I know I've had periods in my life where I've worked so much and because I had to. Right. But at the same time, I know that when, when I have failed to show up well in the workplace, it's generally because I'm tired. Right. And I haven't been taking care of myself. Right. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you help people find that balance in, in the startups you're working with? So they're in, if you're doing 80-hour weeks back-to-back, back, you're probably not going to smile every day in the office. <laughs> and you're going to turn off their team, your team, and they're going to want to leave at 4 p.m. because they don't want to be around you. Well, yeah, and 80 is something else
1: is wrong. If yeah. you feel like 80 hours is what's required, something else is wrong. I just want everyone to find their own combination of aspirations and work schedule. And what I'm suggesting is that the aspiration, the high, high, off-the-charts aspirations, don't mesh very well. It's not internally consistent with a lack uh, a, a lackadaisical schedule. Um, a lot of work is required to end up in that top one, five, or ten percent. Got it.
0: Okay, so let's let's go a little bit more bright and optimistic on this last one. I think it is. Maybe <laughs> it isn't though. Okay. Actually. I think this this one is more Michelle Obama. This next question, yeah. Okay, so our tweet rather. Oh, okay. It, it's more I of a feel, I think it's more of a feel good one. Okay, cool. I think <laughs> if you are having a hard time in your company, you are not alone. Lots of people are with you. It will get better one way or another.
1: Oh gosh, what was going on back then? Seventh
0: of August, two thousand sixteen. I, I don't remember, but. Um, I like that. I, I,
1: I would like somebody to tell me that once in a while. <laughs> maybe yeah. that's, maybe I was tweeting it myself. <laughs> I have done that. Um, yeah, I think well, get better one way or the other. You're not going to bang your head against the wall for the rest of your life. So either you're going to figure it out or you're going to stop. And I, I say this all the time to people, like, who, especially people who are coming out of what's perceived as a safe and secure and 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 awesome environment, and they want it. They're thinking, "Oh, I'm going to go to a startup. Am I signing up for five or ten years of suffering and pain?" No, I, I think you're signing up for potentially worst case twelve to eighteen months of banging your head against the wall. But you're not going to do that forever, and no one's going to pay you to do that forever. Right. So. Right. So, so, yes, you're signing up for a risk, but it's a calculated one. I think the the other thing that 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 is consistently amazing to me is how afraid many people are to talk about their struggle in Silicon Valley, and um, I, I mean I, I work here, so that's the perspective I know, but I'm sure it applies to other industries too. People, everybody's dealing with something, everybody's dealing with something, and you're not the only one in the room who's thinking a particular thing is hard and And just knowing that you're not alone sometimes can help people feel a little bit more optimistic about solving the problem.
0: Awesome. All right. So now I want to talk about something I've been wondering about for months, maybe even years. Wow. So they're not tweets, but they're kind of tweets. Okay. At the top of HarrisonMetal.com, there's a a rotating collection of... (laughs) of sayings that I presume you
1: have put in there. (laughs) I think, uh, yeah, you you and me have spent more time on that website than anyone else, (laughs) if you've noticed that thing. (laughs) But go ahead. That's called the Gooch, by the
0: way. I like the site a lot. Oh, thanks. So I would like to ask you three whys. Yeah, sure. If we were doing Toyota Production System, there would be five whys. Sure. There's just three today. Okay. Okay, we can only afford three today. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you three whys here. The first why is, why do you wish Joseph Schumpeter were still alive? Well, first it's pronounced Schumpeter.
1: (laughs) So get that, please. Um, Why do I wish he were still alive? First of all, he predicted doom for capitalism. And I would love for him to see what it's become and maybe change his mind. The other reason I'd love for him to be alive is to see what has happened to entrepreneurship in the last, call it, 50 years. Uh, He... If you've, if you've read anything about him, you, you may actually. The most famous thing he's remembered for is describing this, what he called creative destruction capital C, capital D as the essential fact of capitalism. And uh, he gave uh, entrepreneurs most of the credit for the stupendous change in, in fortunes that capitalism brought to humanity uh, through the Industrial Revolution. So uh, I would love for him to see what's happened to entrepreneurship in the last couple of decades, and just tell me what he thinks, because back in his time, entrepreneurs were kind of thin on the ground. They, a lot of them left a big imprint, but there weren't as many people trying as many different ways to invent new things as there are today, and the cost of trying those new things was is much lower today than it's ever been in human history, and so I'm just dying to hear his opinion on all that.
0: How would you characterize some of the other shifts that have happened around it? Is it becoming a discipline, or is it that there, the methodology and processes better articulated?
1: I think certainly the latter. Um, I think it's be, it's it's the methodology and the practices and the cost, the explicit cost of how much does it cost to incorporate and get the assets together. I mean, these are very light. Asset light businesses models now. Whether you're talking about making a physical thing or making a piece of software, the um, but the other thing that's happened is, for the first time, our top performing graduates from college and business schools and, and graduate schools of all kind, masters, PhD programs in any field, it's a very viable path for them now. In a way that it wasn't just a few decades ago. So I think the collapse in the cost, the social acceptance of risk taking as a career, as a part of your career. And the work practices and methods all, all kind of make it uh, a, a really fascinating time. And I, I'm dying to hear Schumpeter's take on all that. I want to hear
0: Schumpeter's take, too. <laughs> all right, question two. Yeah. Who is Barbara Minto, and why do you consider her to be a hero? Oh, Barbara is a, Barbara is a, a magical person to me. Uh,
1: Barbara is a woman that I met when I worked at the Walt Disney Company, and barbara was among the first 10 or 11 women to graduate from the harvard business school she was admitted to harvard back in i think the late 1950s early 1960s and back then harvard felt it was being business school felt it was being really progressive by experimenting with admitting women and i'll let her tell the story sometime you should you should go to london and talk to her or get her when she's here on your podcast because she's great but she taught uh, executive communication for many years at McKinsey and & Company. And uh, she became a consultant and she teaches widely her principle called the, pir- the Pyramid Principle on how to write and communicate effectively for executive context. She's, not talking, she's talking about business communication mostly. I think she's a hero because she, very much like uh, many of the other people that I write about and make videos about, She is woven into the amazing changes of the last couple hundred years, and people don't actually know all that she accomplished. Uh, For instance, when she was at at Harvard Business School, she was confronted with uh, an unbelievable set of hurdles that she had to get through, and one of her strategies was to deal with, say, macroeconomics, which she had never been exposed to before, uh, to rewrite the textbook. And, and she took her superpowered brain, and she figured out how to say in fewer words and more clearly than any of the people who had written that textbook, how to teach macroeconomics to other people. And she and her section mates in the, in the all-female section in those days, they all benefited from this skill. And she turned that skill of, of clear, clearly writing and communicating into an amazing amazing business for herself, but also left a mark all across corporate America. Corporate earth really because she she teaches all around the world. Wow. There's a video about her too It's called Thank You Barbara Minto. So you can check on that at uh, harrisonmetal.com.
0: All righty We'll do that. Okay. The last question of this podcast. Sure. Are you ready? Yeah, I think so. Why will dolphins inherit the earth?
1: (laughs) Because they're really smart and they're highly distributed So like if we were to destroy everything either say like by nuclear war or maybe like we flood the whole planet or something they're going to be fine, and I really have swam with them in the wild a lot, and they are communicative, and expressive, and playful, and their brains are freaking huge, and I think that like that's our best shot, you know, if we screw it up, I think they'll, I think they'll, they'll take it over, now we're gonna have to wait forever, so I don't, I don't know how long it will take them to take over, but so don't hold me to a time frame, but I'm pretty confident that
0: I'm there with you, man. They're next. I I think it's either the dolphins or maybe the octopuses.
1: They're very smart too. The problem is they're not social enough to cooperate. True. They eat each other. Yeah. So I think when it comes to making tools and then building societies and networks, Mm. they'll be less successful than Mm.
0: dolphins. Just a guess. Well, thank you for joining us, Michael. (laughs) We really said it all, didn't we? (laughs) We did. I like ending on that note of dolphins um, taking over. Thanks for the invitation. Hey, anytime and keep tweeting. We'll, we'll bring you back when we have a new crop. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. That was so fun. If you want to follow Michael on the Twitter, and I highly recommend that you do. He is at MCGD and he tweets about all the things that we were talking about here. This was not like a small portion or percentage of his output. He tweets all the time about venturing and modern capitalism, and I just learned so much by watching what he's talking about. So again, uh, if you didn't hear it on the podcast, you can find his website, HarrisonMetal.com, and I highly recommend going there and watching all the videos. Give yourself a few days. They are deep, and there's a lot of them on there, and if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, sign up for one of his classes, his in-person classes are pretty mind blowing, I've heard. I've, of course, been in the classroom with him teaching, and he's a master teacher. And uh, I think they will be uh, life changing, to be honest. So check those out. Hey, it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You can uh, always follow us on iTunes, and we are at IDEO Futures on Twitter. We love to hear from you. We love your feedback, and we love your comments. So it's that time again, as we say around IDEO. Don't get ready, get started.